Hello, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. I am your host, Sarah Dong, a MedPeds ID fellow. I'm back with our newest Febrile Digest, which are these newer, shorter episodes that will be space for us to learn about different ID-related items or questions. And so the Febrile case-based episodes are going to continue to come out every other week. But now we have these bonus Digest episodes in the gap weeks for more content. So today I'm joined by Scott Crabtree, and we're going to chat about a common ID curbside or consult question and some exciting news about a meta resource called Pharmageddon. Uh, Scott, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me on. So I'm currently an assistant professor at uh, UC Davis in Sacramento, California. I've been practicing penalty for about maybe five or six years now. I did my residency uh, initially with the Air Force in San Antonio. Then uh, they allowed me to separate for a few years, go up to uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock in New Hampshire for my fellowship. And then I went back to the military for uh, initial five years my service commitment, they freed me up, and I've been at UC Davis ever since, where I do uh, a lot of clinical medicine, clinical infectious disease, including uh, antibiotic stewardship and infection prevention. Great. And we're going to get into a little bit more again at the end of the show. I'll start us off by asking this question that I, I think it actually comes up pretty often. I, I've noticed that sometimes people call when they really want a patient to go home because they notice that they look in an intra-abdominal abscess culture, which has been drained, and the cultures show enterococcus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This question of when do we treat enterococcus and intra-abdominal infections? So I, I don't think that's a very a totally clear yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to hear what your thought process is and how you think about this question. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a common question and a, and a tricky question. Um, one that we get both just on the consul service and on the stewardship service. Uh, usually, as you said, as they're about to go out the door. <laughs> I would say that there there is an easy version of the question, which is, do we need to cover it empirically at all? Because with uh, the intra-abdominal infections, you know, there's hypothetically a whole host of organisms that we can encounter that we don't routinely cover for. And I think when it comes to uh, enterococcus, there is quite a bit of data out there, including good randomized clinical trial data using uh, antibiotic regimens that both have intercalcal coverage and those that don't. Those all fairly consistently seem to show that, especially in low-risk individuals, that the outcomes are about the same. But in scenarios where we do have cultures and we do grow it, um, then that's where things, I think, are a lot more gray. Looking at those same clinical trials, we do see uh, that enterococcus is encountered, like we would expect, but it's in a small portion of, of cases, you know, only probably about 10 to 20% in most people who don't have risk factors for it. So then the Sub-analyses that they do, if they do try to look at that question specifically on, on what are the outcomes in the cases where the cultures have grown in enterococcus, they're, they're often underpowered to see a statistically meaningful result. That said, uh, most of the trials have not seemed to suggest a difference in outcomes, but it does leave it a little open-ended. So as often the case in infectious disease, we, we don't have clinical trial data. We, we turn to our observational studies, which are usually easier to do can really focus on the, the uh, question we have in mind. But when it comes to those studies, the biggest problem we then encounter is just all the, uh, all the variables that go into managing an intranormal infection, which is, you know, which part of the abdomen and which organ system is actually involved, what kind of source control was utilized, was it considered effective or not? 
There's a whole lot of things, and, and it's hard to control for all those variables. That said, there clearly, I would say, from my perspective, seems to be association with potentially worse outcomes, people who have intercaucus in their, in their cultures. But it's still pretty open as to whether uh, targeted antibiotics uh, makes a significant clinical impact or not. Yeah, great. Um, so in the consult notes for this episode, we will put links to these prior trials uh, that compared these regimens that were active against enterococcus for community-acquired intra-abdominal infection versus those that were not. And so generally, this was a combination comparing a group of patients who received piptazo versus something like cipro-metronidazole. Uh, and really, none of the papers, so Cone from 2000, and then there's a handful of papers from the 90s, none of these really showed a clear advantage to treating enterococcus in the, like you were saying, low-risk community-acquired intra-abdominal infection setting. We do have IDSA intra-abdominal infection guidelines that are archived now, but are from 2010. And we have another set of guidelines that are put out by the Surgical Infection Society that were revised. They actually contributed to the IDSA guidelines originally. Could you talk a little bit about what those guidelines recommend in these settings? Yeah, no, the IDSA guidelines are, I think, a, a really good start. And I think they actually kind of highlight the problems and, and they break it down into community onset hospital onset intradermal infections, and then uh, basically risk of complications and disease severity. And where they give their strongest, you know, 1A recommendations is that scenario where we started with is if you are just treating empirically, um, and, and they provide citations to all those uh, randomized clinical trials, which show there's no benefit. Where the guidelines get a little more wishy-washy is in, in the latter scenario that we kind of talked on. But the way they break it down is, is basically kind of a, a risk-benefit kind of assessment on, you know, what is the probability of bad outcomes if we don't treat this uh, sufficiently, depending on, you know, again, things like source control and uh, how sick the patient is. And then what's what's the alternative treatment that you would uh, be offering them? And, and so they do suggest that in some cases, but they're all like 2B, 3B level recommendations uh, that you might consider treating, particularly in those who are higher risk, such as hospital onset, immunocompromised post-surgical uh, infections where the risk uh, appeared to be uh, greater. You know, this question of whether patients with enterococcus isolated in abdominal cultures seem to fail more or do worse is interesting. And we'll put some links to the papers that have reported isolation of enterococcus as a risk factor for treatment and death, uh, which was generally reported in some of the studies from the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, but in recent years, a couple things seem to have come out that suggest that maybe there's no difference in how these patients did. And there's one example from a paper by Sanders and others from 2017 that actually did a post-hoc analysis of the Stop It trial and stratified patients into two groups based on isolation of enterococcus. And they didn't really see any signs of increased or more severe complications. And, you know, I think if you look at some of those initial trials we've mentioned, some of those patients did fine, even if they grew enterococcus and didn't have enterococcus-targeted therapy. I think we're still figuring this question out, but I'd say my suspicion would be that these patients do okay, even if we don't target the enterococcus. Obviously, you have to take it case by case, but I think for for most cases, it seems like 
it probably isn't quite as bad as it was originally billed. Yeah, there was definitely, as you mentioned, some some new research that, that hasn't, I don't think, been incorporated really into either guideline yet, uh, some of which has been observational and, and, and some of which was a, a meta-analysis analysis of um, the randomized trials. The meta-analysis of the randomized trials was, I think, published this last year in the Surgical Infection Journal. Um, unfortunately, didn't really break it down, though, into those who had confirmed intercoccal disease versus just empiric use. That gives us some additional information because it's, it kind of synthesized all the, the prior evidence, uh, clinical trial evidence, but it, it didn't really focus on the specific question of, of when we do have uh, intercoccus in our cultures. But there was another study, which I, I think you were uh, alluding to, uh, there are probably multiple ones, maybe some that I'm not familiar with, but one by Faber et al. published in OFID just a few years ago that uh, avoided some of the problems that we've had and that we with too small of a sample size. They actually had, uh, between the two study arms, over 200 patients with intercoccal infection. About a third received ertapenum and about uh, two-thirds received piptazo. Sometimes with you know these observational studies, uh, the, the two study arms are, are different in many ways beyond just the antibiotic. But in this case, they're actually fairly well matched. And so while there still could be some confounding we're not able to identify, the outcome is definitely in, in that situation were pretty much the same comes to both recurrence and, and mortality. So that certainly would be, uh, I think, a, a, the best evidence we have today that perhaps we don't need to treat it if we see it. Just to kind of say from how I usually uh, apply it to these situations, the whole risk-benefit uh, assessment is, well, what are our alternatives if we are, are, are not going to cover the enterococcus? If it's a matter of piperacillin tazobactam versus ceftriaxone and metronidazole, well, the toxicity risks are fairly similar. The spectrum is, for the most part, fairly similar, So, aside from some anti-sunmonal coverage uh, that you would additionally get. And both, of course, are only intravenous. So by and large, uh, the risk of, the, of, of changing to a, a regimen that targets the enterococcus is, is pretty limited. And so I would say if, if you're not really, it's not really costing you much to target it, uh, it may not make a difference, but, you know, perhaps it will uh, help. Conversely, if they have, you know, anaphylaxis, penicillins, and you can't use piptazo or ampicillin uh, to target enterococcus faecalis, which is what we usually need to target when it comes to these uh, infections, and you have to use something like vancomycin or something, a wholly different agent, usually wholly additional agent, and something that is simply more toxic, uh, potentially at least, uh, then, depending on how they've evolved clinically, is usually at this point you have uh, a couple of days of clinical response uh, to their initial empiric treatment. And if you're doing better, a lot of times I think you would could make a pretty good case for 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 not doing anything. Um, and jumping back to the IDSA guidelines um, back from 2010, one of their bullet points is even that if uh, you have someone who's clinically responded and then you find an organism uh, three days later that is growing culture that is resistant to the empiric regimen. Uh, you know, if you have source control and they've done well, you probably don't need to cover it in most cases. And I think that's a, a good thing, a good general rule, I think, that applies to enterococcus. Yeah. I feel like as a fellow, we get that call more often than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we I felt like this was a really nice question for ID fellows and also hopefully for faculty to take a step back for all of us to think about um, sort of what the evidence was. But we have a range of learners, I think, that listen to the show. And so I wanted to see, you know, what are your pearls and like high yield take homes thinking about antibiotics and enterococcus? 
Yeah, I think enterococcus is kind of a unique organism. That could probably be said about a lot of bacteria, especially if you ask an infectious <laughs> disease physician. Um, <laughs> They're all very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I would say one one thing that I always emphasize is that Generally speaking, compared to Staph aureus or Pseudomonas, they're not generally highly virulent organisms. Not that they can't cause disease, uh, they certainly can, but uh, just because they're there, they don't always necessarily need to be treated depending on the clinical context. And here, I think we've made a pretty good case that often they don't. But the, the big issue with enterococcus, why it gives us so much heartburn and so many headaches and in infectious diseases is the resistance issues, um, and particularly because teams and, and primary uh, providers often forget they're inherently resistant to a lot of the antibiotics we like to use, including all the cephalosporins, which are, are you know, ceftriaxone is the backbone of a lot of empiric regimens, as it should be, and it's not going to cover enterococcus. Uh, but even things we like to use for UTIs sometimes or for skin soft tissue infections, such as uh, clindamycin and trinorethropin sulfamethoxazole, it's, it's resistant to those as well. I'll also say that they don't often, <laughs> they aren't reported on susceptibility uh, results because it's taken for granted that uh, it's resistant and everyone should know that. Uh, being aware of that will, will help you uh, avoid some of common mistakes. Um, yeah. And the only other thing I like to point out uh, with, with learners is that we always focus on the two species of enterococcus that we most frequently encounter, uh, enterococcus faecalis and enterococcus uh, facium, though there are a few other enterococcal species. There's kind of two uh, things that keep in mind when you first see them and you're waiting for additional testing results is that enterococcus faecalis is, is usually the more aggressive of the two, typically the one that's the one that causes uh, anocarditis and, and more severe disease, uh, but it's also usually the more susceptible one. VRE is almost always uh, enterococcus facium, uh, whereas enterococcus faecalis is almost always ampicillin susceptible. So it gives you some, some useful information just knowing the species um, that you can then apply uh, to your patient. And, and as time goes by, uh, that can help kind of guide your management. Yeah. One of our attendings, well, I'll, I guess I should shout him out, Howard Gold, he always says uh, Fecium ends with M and it's more multi-drug resistant. And <laughs> I, I think all the fellow, we all remember that. And I don't know if he taught me that or if a fellow who he taught that to taught me that, but uh, another a way to, <laughs> to remember the M as uh, more drug resistant or multi-drug resistant. But I think that's a really great point about thinking about the two species that we see. Yeah, yeah. I think whatever, whatever works, and it certainly is a wonderful way to learn, to, to memorize it. <laughs> well, to end, I wanted to hear more about Farmageddon because I think uh, as ID learners, we obviously like to hear about ways for us to think about antibiotics, but also as a way to teach others. And I'd love to hear about what you've done with Farmageddon and, you know, what's coming up with that and, and ways that you feel like we could use that to incorporate into our teaching. So Farmageddon is, is, is a simple card game focusing on antibiotics and microbiology. It's just another way to learn beyond, you know, flashcards and textbooks. Games are an underutilized way of, of learning. I think things like games and podcasts and infographics, stuff that you're doing, really um, help things. Uh, but it's a basic game, uh, and I can just summarize it real fast. Essentially, there's you have two decks, a deck of uh, bug cards, which are your bacteria and clinical syndromes, and a deck of uh, drug cards, which is your antibiotics, and it can be played uh, both competitively or cooperatively, uh, and you can even play it alone. But it, it's more than just a, a, a matching game where you match your, your bug to your drug. Really, the goal is to uh, use the, the, the best antibiotic, kill the most pathogens, the least amount of side effects. 
So in essence, it's actually also a, a stewardship game. And it can be played in as short as 15, 20 minutes if you want a short game. And it can be played even longer if you want to do it even longer. The, the game system is actually pretty simple, uh, so it's easy to learn. And you can actually adjust the difficulty depending on whether you're just getting into medicine or if you've been doing it for a while. And it's coming out on a Kickstarter uh, tomorrow, actually. And the reason we decided to do it on Kickstarter is because if, if you've ever looked for uh, medical education games before, uh, you, you may have found a few of them, but there are not many out there, in, in part because it's, it's expensive <laughs> to make a game uh, using the print-on-demand models that most games use. And to bring costs down, you really need to, to print in bulk. And so that's why we're hoping with the Kickstarter to, to get enough backers to, to make a, a nicer product with some nice art and to, to get it to people at a, to, to students and, and learners at, at a good price. Yeah, I love it. And I, I love some of the art that you already have for the Kickstarter. It looks amazing. And we need more resources like this for us. We all know that teaching antibiotics is so much. It's very difficult. I feel like that's the question that we get asked all the time is how do we teach and learn antibiotics? So having as many resources available to us, especially ones that are fun and different and make people excited to learn is a is a huge step for for all of us. Yeah, I think it's something that requires practice and, and, and frequent application. And this allows you to apply it over and over again in, in, a, in a bit more fun way than a standardized exam. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show and teaching us about Enercaucus, but also just a, a great plug. And everyone check out the Kickstarter for Farmageddon. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please check out and support the Farmageddon Kickstarter, which will be live on March 22nd. Uh, some of the upcoming Febrile Digest episodes will also feature some other ways and guests who are thinking about using games and your ID teaching and learning. Like our other episodes, I'll put links to all the mentioned articles in our consult notes. And another quick reminder for the Febrile survey, which we are conducting to better understand how you use Febrile to teach and learn. And I would love your feedback on what to do to improve future episodes. The survey is voluntary, anonymous, and only takes about five minutes. You can find the link to the survey on our Twitter page, on the website, or in the description link for this episode. Thank you so much to all of you who've already filled it out. As always, you can find Febrile on Twitter or on febrilepodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week when we're back with The Troll of Transmutation Part 2. <laughs>